far more self-deprecating. So just one more Mother's Day story uh, for the morning. And this one, there was a day where my mom was cleaning out the bottom shelf of the pantry uh, because my dad worked for Kroger and that's where all the weird samples that he came home with, they all got shoved to the bottom and they would expire and they were food that no one would ever want to eat. Um, And so my mom was sitting on the floor cleaning out that bottom shelf and I was reaching above her for a can of Chef Boyardee and the can fell, busted her head open. Uh, she started crying, and I fainted. Um, and so I fainted. My sister grabbed a rag and, and got her taken care of. She had to go to the doctor and get stitches. Uh, but my mom really embodied God's grace uh, in that she continued loving me, even after I busted her head open with a can of ABCs and 123s. So thanks to all the moms out there. Now, so far in this sermon series, we've discussed the lost art of discernment. And that was the ability to see through things, education, as Rick mentioned, the calling for parents, and really the calling for every Christian to pass down the faith to those who come after us. And the reason we're calling this sermon series Lost Arts of the Christian Life is that there are good, helpful, scripturally endorsed practices that have benefited believers in the past and yet have been mostly forgotten by believers like us today. And so my goal in this sermon series, my goal in examining these lost arts, is that we might put in the hard work used to recover them. That we might come to value these things once again, both for our good, the good of others, and for the glory of God as well. Now, if you've been a Christian for long, or if you've spent any significant amount of time in churches... You may have seen that phrase, lost arts of the Christian life, and assume that this would be just another sermon series on spiritual disciplines. And you may have seen that and thought, I know, I know, I need to read my Bible more, and I need to pray more, and I may need to even do some of that goofy stuff like meditation and silence and solitude, the stuff we talk about with spiritual disciplines. Well, this sermon series hasn't been about spiritual disciplines up to this point. However, I will admit that today's lost art is a spiritual discipline. And I'll also admit that today's lost art may be everyone's least favorite spiritual discipline. It's a lost art that many of us would prefer stay lost. It's the lost art of fasting. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But, before we go further, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this day. Uh, Father, thank you that every Sunday is your day. Every day of the week is your day. Uh, But this is the opportunity we have, week in and week out, to gather together, to pray together, to sing together. Uh, to read from your word together. And so, Father, thank you for Sunday. Thank you that we can come into your presence with confidence, can come into your presence with joy, uh, can come into your presence as your children because of what your Son has done for us. Thank you for his broken body and shed blood on the cross. And, Father, thank you for the moms in the room, those who aren't with us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to remember them and appreciate them, again, not just today, but every other day as well. And Father, be with us as we worship you. Uh, I pray that this time together would be 
beneficial for us, but ultimately glorifying to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So why is it that so many of us so quickly recoil at the thought of fasting? Well, there may be lots of different reasons, but I think there's two really big, really common reasons that we don't like to talk about fasting. Reason number one is that it's weird. It's weird. Eating is such a normal, frequent, and necessary part of life that the thought of intentionally not doing it just seems absurd. And so we think to ourselves that fasting might be okay for some religious hermit living in a cave somewhere. And it may be great if you're one of those old monks trying to see if you can punish yourself more and more and more to prove your love for God. For people like that, fasting is all well and good. But for normal people like us, fasting just seems weird. And so we don't do it. The other reason we don't like thinking or talking about fasting is that it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. The Old Testament term for fasting can also be translated as afflicting the soul. Afflicting the soul doesn't exactly sound fun, does it? And none of us likes being hungry. None of us enjoys being hungry. At this stage in her pregnancy, Olivia often gets hangry. None of us likes being hungry. And so we don't do it. It's simply unpleasant. So while we may not like the thought of fasting, we should also acknowledge that the practice was quite common in the past. And fasting wasn't just common among Christians. Almost every major religion calls its adherents in some form or fashion, in some season or another, to fast. In addition, we see fasting regularly take place throughout some of the most important moments of history. In the years leading up to the Revolutionary War, colonial leaders would often call days of fasting as a way to protest British rule. Abraham Lincoln called for at least three separate national days of prayer and fasting during the Civil War. On May 26, 1940, King George VI called for a day of fasting before Operation Dynamo took place at Dunkirk. People like Gandhi in India, young Sam Kim in Korea, and Dick Gregory in America all fasted to raise awareness of various forms of injustice. And so fasting was far more common in previous generations, in previous points in history, than it is today. And it was far more common among people who weren't even all Christians. But as for the Christians, there are pastors, theologians, and missionaries like Athanasius, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, David Brainerd, Charles Spurgeon, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, who all recognize the value of fasting in the Christian life. Some of the most important Christians in history all recognize the importance of fasting. And the thought that Christians like us would devote so little time, so little attention to fasting, would have been dumbfounding at best, and maybe even scandalous at worst, to those believers who came before us. Now, with all that being said, you could play devil's advocate. You could also make the argument that the art of fasting is not really as lost as I'm making it out to be. 
Because if you get on Amazon right now and type in the word fasting, you will find lots of books and lots of resources devoted to it. I did that this past week. Got on Amazon, typed in fasting, and here's what I found. There was one book that promised that fasting could help you lose weight, heal your body, and feel great. That's in the second edition. So the first edition must have sold pretty well. Another book said that fasting can help you level up your life. I have no idea what that means, but the book promised it. Another book said that fasting was the key to unlocking the secrets of weight loss. Another said that fasting could help you burn fat and achieve a lean body. And there's even a popular Christian weight loss book called The Daniel Plan, devoted to fasting. Although that book might be missing the point of the original biblical story. Maybe just a little bit. So if you're into health and wellness, you may think that fasting isn't really a lost art at all. If anything, it's making a comeback. Fasting is alive and well. But here's the thing. That's not the kind of fasting that we're talking about. We're talking about uniquely Christian fasting. And that is a lost art. We're not talking about fasting for weight loss. We're not talking about fasting for a lean body or fasting to level up your life. We're talking about uniquely Christian fasting. Uniquely Christian fasting could be defined as voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Another definition may be that fasting is a mournful and urgent seeking of God in distressing circumstances. And then a final definition of specifically Christian fasting, and this one might be the best all-around definition, is that fasting is the act of opening oneself to the work of God, expressing profound grief over sin, and pointing to one's ultimate dependence on God for all forms of sustenance. Now you might hear some of this and think, okay, that's helpful to know. And you may even find it a little bit interesting. And who knows, you may already be a little more open to the idea of fasting now than when you walked into church today. But what matters more than history, and what matters even more than the example of Christians who have come before us, What matters most is what Scripture actually teaches about fasting. So let's talk about what the Bible says. So in the Bible, there are many different times of fasting. In all of Scripture, there's only one time that God commands his people to regularly fast. And that's the Day of Atonement, found in Leviticus 16. That was the one day per year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple. The high priest would make several animal sacrifices to God inside, and then once he was done, he would leave the temple, lay his hands on a live goat, confess the sins of all the people onto that goat, and then send the goat away into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat. And while all of this was happening, the sacrifices and the goat and the worship, the people of God were commanded to afflict themselves a.k.a. to fast. So while the Day of Atonement was the only regular commanded fast, there are countless examples in Scripture of what's called voluntary fasts. People would fast as an expression of grief 
In First and Second Samuel, the people and King David fasted when they heard of the deaths of Saul and his son Jonathan. Fasting was often an expression of repentance. In the book of Joel, God calls his people to return to him with fasting. In the book of Jonah, the wicked Ninevites fast as they repent of their sin. It was done in times of crisis. In Second Chronicles 20, the king of Judah declared a fast as they prepared for a massive battle against their enemies. In the book of Esther, the Jews fast when they hear of Haman's genocidal plot. And then lastly, fasting was sometimes associated with asking God for wisdom, seeking God's guidance. More than once in the book of Acts, local church leaders would fast as they discerned where they should go next on a mission trip or when they committed new leaders to service. So in the Bible, there are many examples of fasting in different times and in different ways. A normal fast often consisted of eating no food but still drinking liquid. That's what we usually think of. A partial fast is what you see in the book of Daniel, when Daniel and his friends refuse the king's food and only eat vegetables and water. And then there are absolute fasts, or you may even call them miraculous fasts. Moses went without food and water for 40 days on Mount Sinai. And Jesus did the same thing in the wilderness as he was tempted by Satan. Those fasts are considered miraculous because the human body can't go that long without any food or any water. Now again, that's all good to know, but it still leaves some practical questions unanswered. Namely, should Christians fast today? And if we should fast, how exactly should we go about it? And so for that, we turn to the words of Jesus. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now jump forward to Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. These are the two passages where Jesus speaks most extensively about fasting. And in the first one, Jesus teaches his disciples how they shouldn't fast. Specifically, they shouldn't fast to draw attention to themselves. Jesus says that those who give to the needy, those who pray, those who fast for the praise of men, they may get the worldly honor that they seek. 
But their public and impressive and self-interested religious practices won't get them any reward from God. The Pharisees were often accused of intentionally fasting on Mondays and Wednesdays because that's when the market would be most crowded. That's when the most people could see them. They could disfigure their faces and show everyone just how much they were suffering for God's glory. Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. And then in that second passage, Jesus tells John's disciples that there will come a time when his disciples will fast. But that time hasn't come yet. Jesus says that you don't mourn when the bridegroom is with you. That's a time of celebration. That's a time of joy. And in the same way, when Jesus is with you, that's a time of celebration. That's a time of rejoicing. And fasting is a practice for mourning, a practice for repentance, a practice for a time of crisis. And so Jesus says that they will fast, but not yet. Because being in Jesus' presence and fasting is like being in a bad mood at a wedding reception. It's like putting a new patch on an old garment that's ultimately going to ruin the patch and the garment. It's like putting fresh wine into old wineskins that ends up messing them both up. It's simply not the appropriate response. It's not time to fast yet because Jesus is still with them. Now the truth is that neither of these passages gives us a firm, obvious command to fast. However, they do give us guidance about how and when we should fast if we're going to. It's worth noting that when Jesus uses words like when and then, he says, when you fast, do it like this in Matthew 6. And then in Matthew 9, he says, when I've gone away, then my disciples will fast. So in the two passages where Jesus speaks most directly and most extensively about fasting, he certainly doesn't forbid it. And if anything, he seems to encourage it. And if Jesus didn't expect his followers to fast, why would he spend so much time teaching them the right ways and the right times to do it? Now again, we don't want to read too much into Jesus' words, words like when and then. But it's safe to say that by teaching his disciples how and how not, and when and when not to fast, Jesus is assuming that fasting will be a regular part of their lives moving forward. He's assuming that they will do it after he's gone. And Jesus' disciples after he's gone, that includes people like us. So Christians before us found fasting to be valuable. There's clear precedent in scripture for it. It's all over the place. And not only did Jesus do it himself, but he appears to encourage his disciples to do it as well. So with all that in mind, how does this come together and how does this apply to the lives of believers today? How should we go about recovering this lost art? Well, a few practical ideas. Number one, if we choose to fast, we're called to do it within scriptural guidelines. That means we fast in ways that Jesus commanded us to. Meaning that we don't fast with a selfish goal that people will praise us, will honor us, or reward us. Be so impressed with how holy we are. That's not the point of fasting. 
It means that we fast at appropriate times. Times of grief, times of repentance, times of crisis, times of preparation, times of seeking God's guidance in a difficult position. And it also means that we do not fast to try and impress God. In Luke chapter 18, verse 2, Jesus tells a story about an arrogant Pharisee who looks up to heaven and loudly announces to everyone around him that he fasts twice per week. But Jesus says that this man did not go home in any better standing with God than he was in before. The man didn't impress God with his fasting. And neither will you. And neither will I. Another point is that if we're going to fast, we do not fast to try and manipulate God. This is an important one. This is one that we need to be reminded of. We do not fast to manipulate God. In other words, fasting is not our way of twisting God's arm to do what we want him to do. We don't fast thinking that, well, praying didn't get God to do what I wanted him to do. So maybe if I add on a few skit meals, that'll get his attention. Then I can convince him to change his mind. We don't fast to bring things to God's attention that we think he's overlooked. He's God. If we fast in that way, that betrays an incredibly low view of God. It's a low view of God that we should reject. So we fast when Scripture tells us to. We fast when we discern that it would be appropriate to fast, regardless of whether or not our fasting leads to the results that we desire. We're not fasting to manipulate God. We're not fasting to get something out of him. We're fasting when we discern that it is appropriate to do so. And then finally, we shouldn't be legalistic about fasting. And that means that we're free to do it in different ways. So while the classic social media fast that people do around Lent isn't exactly the kind of fasting that we're talking about today, that doesn't mean it's not beneficial. I've done it before. I might even encourage you to do the same. The same can be said of intentionally taking a break from other things that draw our attention away from God. Taking a break away from things that don't help us in our walk with Christ. Things that we're tempted to turn into objects of worship. In that way, fasting, not just from food, can be a really beneficial thing. And there might not be just one way to do it. And then, of course, our physical health matters as well. The same Jesus who encourages his disciples to fast in godly ways also tells them to pray that God would give them their daily bread. There is nothing sinful in and of itself about eating. And you may not be able to fast in the usual, typical, food-centered way. But that's okay. Because being hungry doesn't automatically make you more holy. There are ways that you can learn the same lessons that fasting teaches without giving up food. And I'd encourage you to look at those different ways. And then we need to remember that ultimately fasting is of no value if we're not in right relationship with God to begin with. There's a passage in Isaiah 58 that speaks to this. It's kind of a scary passage. It's a passage addressed to superficially repentant Israelites. Israelites who appear to be repenting with their mouths, but really their hearts are far from God. So God says to Isaiah, 
Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Much of this passage is sarcastic, starting in verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, hint, they're not, and as if they did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But they say things like, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, God, where are the results? Don't you see how hungry I am? Shouldn't you answer my prayers? God responds, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see him the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. So you can be like the Israelites, and you can do a whole lot of impressive religious exercises to try and earn favor with God. But it won't work. You can fast, you can pray, you can give all you want. But if your heart is far from him, those superficial outward deeds will ultimately have no value. The only work that can bring us into right relationship with God has already been done. And it wasn't fasting. And it wasn't done by you, and it wasn't done by me. It was done by God himself. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. That is what we are completely dependent upon for our salvation. We are completely dependent upon God's grace for forgiveness, reconciliation, and life. We're not dependent on fasting for those things. Fasting might be really beneficial for us, but it doesn't save us. And speaking of dependence upon God, Jesus mentioned dependence upon God when he was fasting in the wilderness. At one point, Satan tempts Jesus in his hunger to turn stones into bread. But Jesus responds by quoting a passage from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, as the Israelites prepare to go into the promised land. God says to them, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, sometimes being hungry is a good thing. Sometimes things not going well for us can be a good thing. Sometimes in the long run, even suffering can be a good thing. Because it reminds us of how frail we truly are. All it takes is a few skipped meals and a lack of water before we start to malfunction. Before we start to get cranky. Before we start to weaken and deteriorate and even eventually die. Fasting reminds us of just how frail we actually are. And if we are so fragile in the absence of food in this life, just imagine how helpless we sinners would be in the presence of a holy God if not for his grace. We are completely dependent upon God for all that is good in this life and all that is good in eternity as well. And so fasting is an opportunity for us to remember that dependence upon God. It's an opportunity for us to express our desire for him even more than our desire for the most basic needs of this life. Fasting is an opportunity to remind ourselves that in the big scheme of things, we do not truly live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Fasting is a good practice for times of crisis, for times of repentance, for times of grief. It's a lost art that we would do well to recover. But as always, we remember that it does not save us. It is ultimately just a reminder of our dependence upon God's grace. And that is what saves us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Again, thank you that our works don't save us. While works of giving and works of praying and works of fasting may be beneficial in practical ways for us in this life, we never lose sight of the fact that they do not save us, that we are completely dependent upon your grace for our salvation. But in a way, going without those things, going without some of the basic needs of life, even just for a short season of time, skipping a meal or skipping two meals. They do remind us of just how dependent we are upon your grace. They remind us of how frail and weak and fragile we actually are. And again, if we are this weak and this fragile and, again, simply this frail in this life, It's just hard to imagine how helpless and how hopeless we would be coming into your presence in eternal life without the death and resurrection of your Son. And so, Father, again, I pray that we would recover this lost art, not in order to impress you, not in order to impress others, but to simply be reminded of who we are, who you are, and just how vast and deep our need for you is really is. So, Father, again, thank you for this time we've had to read from your word, and I pray that we would take these lessons with us, that we would pursue them, that we would work to recover these lost arts for our good, but ultimately for your glory. We love you. We thank you for 
Your Son, Jesus Christ, who secures our salvation, regardless of how full or regardless of how hungry we may be. Again, we glorify you, and we thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.